Inside Speedway is brought to you by P1 Australia and by Speedway Classics Magazine. On sale now. From the dirt tracks across Australia, welcome to Inside Speedway with Dennis Newman and Craig Revell. Well, Dennis... Great to be back, and as this speedway somewhere in the world, the world of outlaws getting underway uh, on Friday last week. It was uh, great to see it all up and about. Yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Craig. Um, uh, no crowd in attendance, I might add, but nevertheless, it was actually cars on the speedway track, which which thank goodness for that. <laughs> and uh, it was a World of Outlaws show, as you say, invitation. And uh, David Gravel took out the main event, a good win from Ian Madsen, uh, keeping down under the flag flying high. And, of course, Logan Shuhart was third. But as you say, just just good to see a bit of action on a racetrack somewhere. Yes, and, uh, well, as we know, Knoxville won't be racing again, to my understanding, until uh, they get crowds back at Iowa. Now, for the World of Outlaws, the Federated Auto Parts Raceway is the next event on the 22nd of May, and that's at I-55. So that's when uh, they'll kick off, or they'll return to the track. And um, I think we've... uh, Did they also have some runs at... Lincoln and no, they all got postponed, didn't they? So Jackson Motorplex. Yeah, I've got enough. Yes, will be when right, the sedans right, get started again too. Yeah, and I've got another update here too. I got a USAC uh, press release only a matter of hours ago, as a matter of fact, uh, and they are resuming racing next month. And, and the good news uh, is that the annual Midget Speed Week uh, will be run, and, and just very quickly the dates. Uh, June 16, uh, this is the Indiana um, Midget Speed Week. Uh, June 16, Paragon, Gas City, I-69, Speedway, June 17, Lincoln Park, June 18, June 19, Bloomington Speedway, June 20, Lawrenceburg, and June 21, Kokomo. So that's good news. Um, USAC up and running as well soon, um, and and the Indiana Midget uh, Week, Midget Speed Week. Uh, so that's great news. Mm. And the Sydney 50 lapper took place over three nights, and it was a New Zealander who uh, took the chocolates. Yeah, Matt McCutcheon, yes. And what a great promotion that was by the Speed Car Association of New South Wales. I've had some incredibly, you know, positive feedback about this. And, um, look, it was wonderful for the people involved um, and the sponsorship and $1,500 to win, Craig, just just tremendous result all round. Everyone was delighted. And I think there will be more to come. Um, it was an enormous runaway success. It was great to see so many different nationalities taking part in it. And uh, as we mentioned, it was the New Zealander, Mitch McCutcheon, I think is the uh, pronunciation Uh, there. uh, Matt 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 McCutcheon. McCutcheon. Matt McCutcheon taking the win. And he spoke to, uh, well, he spoke to the audience after the race talking about his victory. 
Yeah, man, it was definitely a chess game, you know, it was just, uh, what I was reminding myself is it's just one at a time, you know, we've got a long race still, and um, just kind of try uh, try to tune up the shocks a little bit, you know, just to try and maximise the cow for those last 25. All right, now we had five to go, there was a yellow, what goes through your mind on that restart, knowing that you're basically two and a half miles away from that chequered flag? Oh man, that was painful, that yellow. <laughs> I was a little bit worried there, but you know, the number one thing was just to calm yourself down and just, uh, you know, just saying, you know, if I hit my, if I hit my marks, we could, uh, could park it in victory lane tonight. Well, that wasn't the last yellow because we had one with two to go and a green white checker meant just you had to hold on for two more laps. How do you try and predict, you know, how do you try and time a restart to where you can put probably one of iRacing's best drivers behind you in the back seat and, and come away victorious here tonight? Yeah, man, that's exactly it. You know on the restarts, when you've got a field like this, what we had tonight, you know, you know you're not just going to pull away from them on a restart. So um, it was more just about lining up that turn one and just making sure we nailed it so we uh, didn't get a slide job. I was watching that race, Dennis. It went to a, a green-white checkered finish. So uh, they went, actually right. went more than 50 laps. Yeah, right. Incredible stuff. Mm. Yeah, very, very good. Good. Now, very good. in sprint um, car circles, Dennis, <laughs> there's some big news. The um, news is is stunning, actually. Um, in the last 24 hours, um, Robbie Farr, um, who has been a regular for 13 years' involvement with Barry Waldron, car owner, East Coast Pipeline Sprint Car Team, um, is no more. Um, and I might add... Um, just an amicable parting of the ways. People tend to read the wrong things into these kind of things. Nothing of the sort. Um, I guess it's just run its course in time. That's probably the best way. Now, I hasten to add, we have been trying to get on to Robbie today because this this is the major news stories of the story of the day, no doubt. And um, we've, we've, you and me, uh, we've tried to get him here to talk on the show and left messages, phone calls, etc., but I can understand he's probably just inundated and his phone's obviously running hot. Um, So hopefully we can get him for next week's show. Yeah, hopefully indeed. We do have a treat coming up on this week's show. A a man whose personality is big as some of the trophies he won. Yeah, um, and what a character. We we talk of lack of colourful personalities of today's era. Um, well, this man was a was very much a throwover from the '60s, and he and he had some very good years on the pavement at Liverpool in a midget. I'm talking, of course, the one and only Jack Porritt. Mm, so we'll be back with Jack right after this break here on Inside Speedway. Inside Speedway is available on SportsRadio.com.au, iTunes, Spotify, and the DirtTrackChannel.com. Jack Porritt joining us on the line now. Jack, you did all well, a big portion of your racing in Sydney, but you're living up in Queensland. What the heck do all these New South Wales Speedway drivers want to retire in Queensland for? Well, all the sensible ones. What happened was I was on my way to Darwin for the Australian Midget title way back, oh, 38 years ago. I got in Brisbane. I had about a month to have a holiday, and I Dave McCarp and, and, and a gentleman up here by the name of Stan Burrow, who drove a midget, he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm just taking me time. He said, what about you give me a hand with my workshop for a week, fix up all of the paperwork. In doing so, uh, Bill Good said, well, why don't you come and run your car at Archerfield? So I did that. 
and uh, I never got to Darwin. I just sort of stayed here. I like the lifestyle. It's much slower paced than Sydney and uh, less crime rate, but they're catching up, of course. But I just like the atmosphere here, so I stayed here. Mm. Now, when was the first time you got involved in motor racing? 1947. And what were you doing? Going to the speedway at the Sydney Sports Ground and Saturday night to the showground. My uh, parents used to go dancing, and I was only a little tacker, so the guy across the road babysat me, and not that I remember going to the sports ground at age four or five or something, but um, he would take me to the sports ground Friday night and to the Sydney showground on Saturday night. And I, mainly because it was only 100 yards down the road to the showground and 300 metres or yards down to the Sydney sports ground. So that's how I got into Speedway. I've been going ever since. Yeah, Jack, and, and living in Moore Park Road was very handy to both of those venues. Now, Jack, I just want to ask you a couple of things here. Your career um, really blossomed, I think it's probably fair to say, when you took to the Liverpool pavement and you won so many main events in that incredible 74 season. Um, what was it with the pavement? I mean, you were a good midget driver on dirt. I'm not saying otherwise, but when you hit the pavement, geez, uh, you were virtually unbeatable. Well, we, the big thing was equipment. I, uh, I was running inferior cars in the early years when I started, which you do, of course, and I moved up to a Chevy 2, then I moved up to a bit further, and then I uh, got American driver Hank Butcher bought me an Offenhauser over from the States, and it was just before the asphalt started, and uh, the car just suited the asphalt. It was brilliant and so easy to drive, and I loved every minute of the asphalt, but I still liked the dirt. That car, Jack, had a fair bit of pedigree and, and um, history um, when, when it arrived here in Australia. It certainly did. Uh, Walt Faulkner and, and a lot of names I'd never heard of, but they drove it back in the day. And because and, and it was a 1947 model at that time, they're all updated. And it, it was based in Bakersfield in California. And uh, he had some named drivers in it. And, and if you watch the movie To Please a Lady, it's actually the back, back marker car in the all the feature races they run in that great movie. So. Uh, I, I lucked into a good one. Well, you did, and of course, Walt Faulkner won the pole at Indianapolis in the early fifties. Uh, not in that car, I hasten to add, but but so there were some some very distinguished competitors who sat behind the wheel of the midget. Jack, um, the the era was great, wasn't it? I mean, um, what what is your fondest memories about uh, not only Liverpool, but you you know you. If I remember rightly, you were in the B-grade section uh, with Ronald Mackay at Liverpool City Raceway running on a Friday night before you actually graduated into A-grade. This is about 1968, 69, I hasten to add. We don't need to be reminded of the date. It's only a few years ago. We um, There were so many cars <laughs> running in those days, and they said to the B-graders, which was Ronald Mackay, and I, I think... Craig's father had just got into A grade at that stage, 
and they said it was uh, Friday night's dirt at uh, at Liverpool. So we're going to send 15 or 20 of you blokes up there and the, the guys that don't measure up in the A grade on the Saturday night at the showground, they'll be at uh, Liverpool the Friday night after. Now we had, we had blokes being sent up there. I remember Ron Isbell. I remember Len Brock. Um, quite a few of the big names that just sort of had a couple of bad nights. They sent up with us. And, and Ronald and I at the time, we, we were just winning everything between us but having a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And we were earning good money. And then one night, uh, the great Max Linkler, the chief steward, said, well, you better come down to the showground and I'll put you on the back of the feature race. I'll, I'll see if you can learn anything. Just follow these uh, these fellas and see what happens. And uh, I think Royal won it, and I ran third. And they said, well, you better come back next week to the Royal. And we said, no, thanks. We're having too much fun at Liverpool, which is what happened. We went back to Liverpool and uh, it carried on from there. When you did eventually graduate to uh, running at the Sydney Showground, what, what was your first thoughts of, of when you were in A grade? And here it is, the, the Golden Bowl. Uh, you're going to be a permanent fixture every Saturday night. What was running through your mind, Jack? Well, unbelievable. The, the first thing that was in my mind was if you get off the front, don't spin and bring the field down. Bob Tattersall said that's the worst crime you can commit in Speedway. And uh, I had that on my mind, but um, for the first few weeks, they started us at the back of the field. So we were actually back markers, but we weren't. We were big graders. And just the, the sight of those 18 or 20 midgets in front of you, the huge crowd, the lights. And when the lights went off, there was only the track lights left on. And, man, it, it was uh, it, it was an unbelievable feeling to run with those blokes. And, you know, Lou Marshall, Johnny Stewart, Len Brock and Tattersall when he was here and other Yanks and, oh, hard to explain. And the thrill never went away, never went away. No, there was uh, one thing about the Sydney Showground. It was not only a world-famous venue, but it had a character and charisma all of its own, didn't it, Jack? Oh, it was unbelievable. I was in the middle with Johnny Stewart one night, and it was just before sundown, and we, we were talking about the and he said, it doesn't matter how bad you go on the track. He said, you might run last every night for a week. He said, but say there's 22 cars in the feature race. Well, there's 30,000 people watching you, and nearly every one of them saying, geez, I wish I could do what he's doing. He said, so you're in pretty good company out here. And I thought, oh, geez, well, and that's what it felt like. You know, you were, you were entertaining as well as uh, and, and doing what you liked. It was great. Did you like the fact that Liverpool, by the showground standards, was a, a much bigger, wider track, and if you're back marker, you need as much room as you can to get through? Well, you, you did, but the showground, there was there was just something about the showground, narrow as it was. Um, you could still get around there three wide. That was the amazing part about it, um, whether it was the drivers had more skill or what, I don't know. But um, the asphalt was uh, wider, much faster, much more precise. So, as I said, the dirt was easier to drive physically, but um, there wasn't a lot of room to pass in the showground. But if you did it right or, or the other guys did it right, everybody got through all right. And the big thing about the asphalt is it was probably one or two hours less cleaning you had to do on the Sunday morning. 
Well, there was none. There was none unless you, unless you crashed it. You took it home in an envelope then because they crashed pretty hard. But um, unless there was a bad oil spill, you, you really had no cleaning to do. There was, you know, hose it off, chamois it off, check everything, and, and you were more or less ready to go for the next week. Um, whereas the dirt, well, you, you, you had a, a paddock full of dirt you took home every night, and you know, they got some of that clay mixture in with it, and some of it, well, it was terrible stuff to get off. So the asphalt, you could afford a bit more chrome and a bit better paint job. Now, Jack, on your pit crew, we're talking Liverpool here, was a pretty distinguished, well, the, the pit crew member, but his father was a very, very distinguished radio announcer in Sydney, and you, you got the sport incredible coverage. Tell us the story. Well, I had a service station at Taramara, North Sydney, and a lot of the big names of radio and TV, Del Delin, Del Delaney and Strop and uh, Rick Apudi and a fan doobly, and Mr. Ward Pally Austin and, and uh, a couple of the big tennis players like uh, Mr. Newcomb and what have you, and uh, Gary O'Callaghan from TUE. And uh, his son took a bit of an interest in the cars and, his dad said, you, you got room on the pit crew for him. And, you know, would that be all right? So we found a shirt and a pair of trousers that fitted him. And, and young Kieran O'Callaghan, um, he crewed for us for a while. And his father uh, had a little mascot on TUE at 8.30 on, the, on, on every day of the week. And uh, he would talk to the school children. Sammy Sparrow was his name. And he lived in the roof in the opera house, by the way, with his wife and kids. And, uh, That's right, he did, yes. Yeah, and uh, Sammy would ring on a Monday morning and say, now, what did you do on the weekend, Sammy? Gary would say, so I went to the Speedway. So what did you go to the Speedway for? He said, I went to watch Porridge. He said, what did he do? He said, yeah, oh, he Porridge. crashed again. Yeah, Jack Porridge. He said, he crashed again. Another week he'd say, well, he won a race on the Saturday night. And I had a hell of a trouble flying home to the opera house carrying that big trophy, but I had to take it home and show the kids. Well, that went on for, oh, quite a few years, and that in turn brought me some brilliant sponsors like Ansett Airlines and Farm Paints and quite a few others that wanted to get on the bandwagon, which I, and I took them all. Yeah, Jack, you, you did give the sport tremendous media exposure. There's no question of that. And and it was all tied in with the era. It was still kind of still a bit of a leftover from the 60s, the euphoria of the 60s. Now, I just want to go back to that time. Now, you probably got to learn more about the Sydney showground than most other competitors because for a time there, you were the track curator at the Sydney showground. How did all that come about? Well. We used to go to lunch down opposite uh, uh, McGee Cam's uh, workshop at King's Cross. And Fridays they'd have the, the annual lunch. Every Friday we'd go over to Rasses across the road, the Chinese restaurant. We'd all have steak and chips. And uh, you name it, everybody came from Brock, Mannion, all the names of Speedway, all the, 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 the officials and everything all ate there on a Friday, and, and you'd meet them all. Mike Raymond was a big guest. And uh, one day, Owen Bateman, who was promoting at the showground, he said, uh, you're a greenkeeper, aren't you? I said, yeah, by trade. He said, okay, come and see me during the week. I did. He said, we want a boat to do the track for us. And I thought, well, geez, that's a long way from home. It's nearly 100 yards to drive. 
and uh, we did the deal and, and I became track curator there for three or four years. And so I've done more laps than anybody around the showground on the grader, the tractor, and ran my car on it. So the track was done, and it suited me every night, I must say. It, it was well done, but uh, we only ever had one dusty night, and we only had one pothole in all that time I prepared it. And uh, we had a ball, and, and the boss man was uh, Mr. Um, Sherwood, and uh, then Frank Arthur was the background man, and uh, he loved the idea of being a greenkeeper because uh, he was a bad bowls freak. And uh, it took off from there, and I stayed there and enjoyed myself immensely. And when the Royal Easter Show came along, Frank said, what are you going to do for the six weeks? I said, I don't know. He said, we'll go to Brisbane, do the track at the exhibition ground, and race your car. And I did for every year for that. I had a six-week holiday in Brisbane, raced my car, did the track, got paid for both, and won my first feature race in uh, in Brisbane. So it really all started at Sydney's Diamond Bay Bowling Club, which Frank uh, frequented from time to time. He did. Well, he bowled at uh, Dover Heights Bowling Club, and uh, he was a guest at Diamond Bay where I was working. And uh, I also did a bit of time at Bronte. But, uh, yeah, old Frank, he was a keen bowler. He, he loved the whole game. Jack, <laughs> when you were preparing the track at the Sydney Showground, you didn't prepare it how you liked it. You, you did cater for everybody, didn't you, Jack? Yeah, yeah. I realised it had to have a good track for uh, solos, sidecars and midgets. Um, if you did it for the bikes, how they liked it. It wasn't good for the cars. If you did it for the cars, it didn't suit the bike. So you had to try and strike a happy medium. And I found the easiest way was to uh, either late Saturday night after the races or early Sunday morning to go in, run the run the blade over it and take all the previous night's rubber and little ripples and everything off the track and then concentrate on relaying it. And that took a couple of days' work and then start again with the, the water and the finishing touches on the Thursday. So it was quite an involved effort because it was such a big place. But uh, it was enjoyable. You mentioned you got your first win at the Ecker, and I know your podium there in uh, a Queensland title. What did you really enjoy about going up there and, and racing up against Blair Shepherd's mob? Well, I only had a hold at that stage. Well, I only had a hole in that. It was a pretty good hole in that. It was the car I bought off Gary Rush. It was the ex-Joe Brandler car from uh, Adelaide. And it had a real good history. And um, to run against five or six offies uh, and the calibre of Shepherd, uh, Bob Morgan, Ronnie Wongless, and Gary Saker, Brian Dillon, it was brilliant. And um, the Queensland title, uh, I was leading it right to about six laps to go. and. Ronnie had asked the steward, what happens if you spin out? And uh, the steward said to him, well, if you spin somebody, you go to the rear of the field. But spin E will go back in his position. So Ronnie spun me out. And uh, they restarted me at the front, but they put Ronnie back into his place in second. And, of course, I wasn't up to the calibre of him, and he passed me with a few laps to go. So second in the Queensland title was a big deal. And the following week, I won the feature race, and uh, that beat him. And uh, I was I was chuffed in that. It was the first open feature race. I'd run in, sort of run in against mixed company like that with fabulous machinery. 
you're involved with uh, Headley McGee and uh, the McGee uh, branding was on the car for a while. How did that association come about? I think just hanging around, I, I knew uh, Phil and Chris and what have you from Ramick High School. And uh, when we were high school people in that area, and I knew that they lived at Coogee and been to their house a few times and then started to go down to the uh, to the cross to their shop and, and started learning a few things, and which, which they were only too glad to impart their knowledge with everybody. And uh, it came to the deal with the sponsorship for the McGee injection and the McGee fuel and oil pumps. And uh, when, when you can get those sort of sponsorships back in those days, you, you didn't say no. And uh, it was great. They sponsored all my fuel injection stuff for quite a few years, and very good too. Jack, I think probably you compare eras, and I know it's always, you know, um, difficult in one way. Um, Jack, what was so special about your time, and how do you view the sport today? I came in at the end of the 60s period, which went into the 70s, and when the Ashfield came along, it was a different aspect of the sport. Everybody says, oh, I didn't like the Asheville or I don't like dirt. You couldn't compare either. They were two forms of, the, of the, the same race cars in those days. And I enjoyed both. I found dirt driving was a lot easier physically than, than the Asheville. Um, racing against guys like, you know, Gary Rush and, and uh, Stan Lawrence and Johnny Fenton when he came over. Um, uh, a real old bloke called Howard Ravel. Um, we had some great days, and you'd go into the pit and you'd laugh about what happened. Ronald Mackay was was sort of at his peak then, and we, we were just having a great time. Barry Pinchbeck and all those names that people remember from that era. And I go to the modern era now, and I I, I say to a lot of the drivers, go to the speedway. Nah, nah. Like you know, it's it's not the same anymore. It's it's a matter of I'm not going fast enough. I'll buy a bigger engine. Um, anything off my car will fit your car. They're cookie cutter cars. Uh, they have no appeal as race cars in their body shape with a, a side panel. You can see the tip of the driver's helmet. And we used to be able to watch the drivers work in the old days and watch the elbows going and watch the, the hand signals to other drivers and. You could see the drivers working these days. You, you don't know what it, they look like bobcats to me, and and I'm afraid they they're all going fast. Um, probably not far, much faster than we did in our day, but a lot more of them going faster, and it's just not appealing. Although there is some great drivers, just hasn't got the appeal of the uh, pre-roll cage and early roll cage days. Jack, who was the best uh, driver you raced against and why? Oh, let's not argue about who that was. My goodness. What an, uh, if it was an Australian, um, I'd, I'd, I'd say in the early days, Shepard Morgan up here, Eric Mitchell. Um, in Sydney, it was, of course, Ronald McCoy, that old, that old fellow, Howard Ravel, Barry Pinchbeck. Um, some of the Eric Morton cars, 
uh, were brilliant. Uh, Stan Lawrence was another good operator. Uh, too, too many to mention on any night. You had one of any ten that could win it without being a favour in the preacher field. And um, there were just some great drivers. And, uh, I was impressed with Hank Butcher when he came here. Very smooth, very neat. A couple of the New Zealanders that came over, like Ted Tracy, he was brilliant to watch. Um, you could go on for an hour and say who was the best. But I don't think there was a best. Mel Kenyon was the most professional I've ever seen. Sleepy Trip was just brilliant to race with and have fun with. Um, Gary Patterson, another character. Um, you know, you go on for hours. I was really, really impressed with AJ Foyt. He hadn't driven a Volkswagen before he came to Australia, and he just got in it and just did the job. Impressed everybody, and, and yeah. you know, they were a different car to drive. You were actually uh, one of the few drivers on that first occasion. AJ Foyt came here January 12, 1975 it was, and you actually um, were able to run with him and, and in an earlier heat race. Um, tell us the result. Well, they had a point score going all season, our club, to see who the four drivers that would meet the four Americans. It was Foyt, Kenyon, Larry Patterson and, and uh, Larry, Larry Rice and Gary Patterson. And uh, I think it was Kevin Gormley, Ronald Mackay, I can't remember who else it was, and myself. And they were match races, change position, four match races, change position each, each two or three laps. And um, we had open exhausts in those days. There was no mufflers, and that made a big difference. And the place was packed because no one believed that Mike Raymond could ever get AJ Foyt and, and Kenyon on the same program. And uh, he did for two years, which was brilliant. But um, I know he had open exhaust. He, the heat I beat him in, and I don't know, he wasn't far behind, but um, you could hear the crowd above uh, making a noise above the sound of the exhaust. That's a noise that stays with you for a while. But it was a great thrill. It was a great thrill. It was the only one in the country that year. So that's in the books. Now, Jack, you, you had a, a great part of your career at Liverpool, very, very successful, and, and uh, there were very few times you ever bent the car, to, much to your great driving ability on the Liverpool high banks. But there was one afternoon it wasn't the case, and you nearly brought down the track lights. Tell us what happened. <laughs> Barry Pinchbeck and I were leading. Barry was leading the feature race, and me, I think it was about three laps to go. We came onto the front straight, and halfway along, Pinchbeck just turned hard left. And as soon as he did, I knew why. There was a car idling around the fence, and if I'm not sure, not mistaken, it was Steve Brady. And I just about cleared him, and I ran over a wheel. And the thing just bounced and clunked, and it jumped the fence, and it hit the uh, the wire safety fence at the back and caught the big uh, safety cable. And which, which sort of flipped the car in midair and it took out the top two rails of the fence on the way back onto the track and landed upside down. And uh, that was a new car week, brand new car. And I, I still don't remember the action myself. And uh, I got up at 6 o'clock next morning, went to work as you do, and opened the service station and 
I turned the TV on and it says, driver cheats death. And I thought, oh, what's happened here? And I had a look and <laughs> oh. I walked out in the workshop and I this bent midget sitting there with a cage half flat and it was me and I I never got over the fact that I'd taken my false teeth out, which I, I did, and we were in my pocket and I did a TV interview without any teeth and I, I got ribbed for that for many years. Didn't, didn't you what? <laughs> um, <laughs> see, there it is. We're, we're, talk, we're talking about... We're talking truth talking here. about this cover... Yes, we are. <laughs> Talking truth. <laughs> and, um, yes, but um, the point of it is, though, Jack, there you go. Like Mike Raymond had the coverage, got it on the news, got it the next, you know, it was on the news the next day. You, you are right. Um, now, Jack, probably a little bit, a slight little bit of self-indulgence here, but I'm sure the listeners would like this story. I got to know you around probably 68, 1968. All because yeah. of a USAC sticker on a on a car. It was. <laughs> tell us, it tell was. us what happened. Tell us what happened. It's a, it's a I was working at Lanny Motors VW sales at um, Bondi Beach, one street back from the beach. And I used to walk up to the sandwich shop of a day and I spotted this. I'm pretty sure it was a Ford Falcon at the time. And there was a USAC sticker on it. And I thought, well, that's the creme de la creme as far as stickers go. I've got one. How dare this bloke have a USAC sticker? And uh, it was, they were beautiful. They still are. And uh, after a couple of days, this boy said, uh, how you going? I said, oh, good. Looked around. He's a, he's a gentleman there. And he said, uh, I see you're looking at my sticker. I said, yeah. And he got the But his name was Mr. Newland. Father of the great Dennis Newland, scribe extraordinaire. And uh, from then on, we've, we've known each other and through thick and thin. It's, it's been a, a long association, long association, all because of a USAC sticker. Yeah. Um, Jack, I've got to say, um, you, you're, you're a very, very good friend of mine for those all those years, and and we have had some great times together, some wonderful times, but just don't mention the 1983 Speedway Classics magazine. <laughs> oh, can I talk to Craig, please? <laughs> I I think I know where this is going. Yeah, well. It, 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 doesn't not, it come down to forced well. perspective? Yes, it does. It does. It was a, it was a terrible, glaring error in one of Dennis's magazines. Not the fact that I rang him thirty years later and, and, and complained about it, but I still haven't got my one and six back that it cost me for a magazine with false reporting. <laughs> so, but, but, <laughs> Jack, Jack, you've only got to mention full pen gate. Yes. In my in my defence, now if you were in the bullpen's corner, now you hear me out here, and you're looking down to where I was actually standing, you were looking from the bullpen's corner. That's not how you reported it. You reported <laughs> it facing the bullpens, and you were standing in pit well, corner looking into the pits. Yes, but you weren't facing well, I was, them. You no, had your back I, to it. Hey, look. The fact remains, the you camera. still owe me one and sixpence for my my. <laughs> I, I spent my good hard earned money on a magazine that had false news in it, fake news. It was now <laughs> fake news. Now, listeners, I got now to tell everybody you, knows. I, was, I had the I, I had the camera pointed at 
on where was I facing and where was I looking from? Now, there's the question. Technically, you were looking at the pits, and you said, <laughs> no, "Here I, I am, standing, standing, looking at the bullpens." You had your back to them. That's right. All right. But the, when I the, found the, out that you were a rooster supporter, you're all forgiven. <laughs> It was all forgiven. <laughs> all forgiven, yes. Jack, yes. Uh, Jack look, on, honestly, Jack, uh, you, you're, you're a great friend and, 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 a, and I've got to commend you. Your career, it's been colourful. It's been exciting. You're one of the few competitors who, who was able to get into the media as far as coverage of the sport in mainstream media. Those years with Gary O'Callaghan were fabulous. Every... Every Monday morning you'd hear Jack Porridge mentioned with Sammy Sparrow and Gary O'Callaghan. Absolute brilliant coverage. So, Jack, you, you, you've been an ornament to the game and you're a very good friend of mine and, and, I, and I wish you good health in the future as well. And the same to you, Dennis. And we'll bury for the Roosters again as we've done for many years. Well, now I know we what certainly will. Yeah, what jumper he would have had on in going up against. No wonder he uh, gives my dad so much of a hard time being a St George boy. Um, yeah, well, it was I? I was in that Roosters team, and I've got photos of me in the Roosters <laughs> team, and I never got a mention with the Roosters team. They put that three other blokes. I think it was I don't know Johnny Stewart and Barry Valentina and somebody, and they left me out. I was only the reserve, but that didn't matter. <laughs> How did that work? Yeah, we've seen the photos. Dennis had the photos published not that long ago. But yeah, and he left me out. How do you? How do you? How do you explain? How did team racing of that nature work? Somebody came up with the idea, and I think it was Owen Bateman actually. And he said, um, you know, you, Johnny Stewart lives in South Sydney area. Valentina was living in the area at the time. Howard Ravel and George live over at um, uh, over St George area near the Taj Mahal, so they end up with four drivers for each uh, team. Um, I remember Wayne Fisher used to wear a Parramatta jersey all the time, uh, and that was it. I and mean, it just became teams racing, and they sort of worked out points with the audience. And uh, St George won followed by Eastern Suburbs and so on down the line. It, it created a bit of interest at the time. Was it match racing like you do against the Americans? Was no, it, or it was just it, points it was over heat the racing? Yeah, oh, it was okay. heat racing. They'd have one of each in a heat, um, and other guys uh, didn't have jumpers, and it was still the normal program. But they sort of added the points up for each finish, from what I can remember. I don't. Re- I never never found out who won what. I don't reckon they were Hinchman approved uh, driving gear. Well, neither was Bobby Holt's uh, T-shirt and shorts when he crashed big that one night. Um, but they were no mixing, so it was all right. <laughs> Jack, it's been a pleasure catching up with you here on Inside Speedway, and uh, yeah, we echo Dennis's thoughts. Look after yourself, and uh, we'll definitely be Thanks looking forward to for some that. more stories from you in the future. Well, there's plenty to come, so I'll, I'll discuss that with your father when I see him this week and we'll have a cup of coffee. Mm. And, and if anybody ever told you your dad wasn't a legend, uh, he's one of my heroes, even though he's older than me. Mm. How did you get 79, by the way? Why did you pick 79? Well, when I used to have to go to those rotten dances when I was a kid, um, I was allowed to sell the raffle tickets and, and – uh, 
at the Scottish dances. And, and then when I was 12 years old, they said, well, you're of age now. You can buy a ticket. So I sold the tickets and I bought one ticket. And I think it was a shilling. And I got 79. Then they said, well, your first night uh, in the raffle, you better draw the ticket. And I drew 79. Um, and it's stuck with me ever since. Yeah, I know it's stuck that. Stuck with me ever since. I know that. That's called an honest raffle, and the ticket you want to win stuck under the brim. Yeah, the pin stuck in me, but I got it. <laughs> but I got a bottle of Scotchman, and my dad grabbed that in a hurry. <laughs> I, a, a short story. I went to as a guest of the, another uh, vintage club up here about five weeks ago. Um, I went with Howard and. Uh, we were invited guests, and I had to give a speech and talk to the people. So they sold us some raffle tickets. So they said, oh, Jack, well, you, you, you draw the raffle. I drew my own ticket again. So I got the forty-five, I got the $35 voucher and, uh, and a hat and a, and, a, and a cap. So I thought that was a good night. Mm, indeed. Well, we hope there's plenty more good nights to come, Jack. Thanks for joining us on Inside Speedway. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I'll talk to you again sometime. Goodbye now. Dennis, Jack Porrett, what a colourful character indeed. But we can't let May 13 pass us by this week without remembering George Tatnell. Of course, we had Brooke on the show last week, and if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it online at sportradio.com.au. Dennis? Yes, May 13, 2007. Um, A colourful personality, a, a, a great man, a great competitor, uh, a man who really tapped into the corporate world with sponsorship. Uh, the late, great George Tatnell uh, died of pancreatic cancer, aged 68, May 13, 2007. He's always remembered. He always will be remembered. And uh, we, we, we paid respect to him this week, May 13, with a good coverage on Facebook. A lot of people responded. It's great to see and just speaking of May 13 to Craig um, and, and turning our attention to England and the bike scene, now Swindon boss Alan Russiter uh, has uh, paid a magnificent tribute to Lee Richardson eight years to the day. He also was killed on May 13. Um, he died in a crash in Poland uh, during a league match. And... Um, Alan has spoken highly of Lee Richardson, who was a, who was a great speedway rider, let me tell you, for, for, for his country. And um, um, I guess the best um, quote I can give you is what was sent me uh, through the British Speedway Promoters Association today. And um, Alan Russiter has said, Lee was very professional in everything he did, and today's riders, some of them could learn a thing or two from the way he took care of his equipment and sponsors. He was, a, he was a delight to have at Swindon. I enjoyed working with him and the sport misses him. And I just think that probably sums it up. Um, he was he was a name in England and a, and a talented speedway rider. So May 13, Craig, very significant in international speedway history. Mm, indeed. Dennis, Great to catch up with you. Hopefully, all going well. It's Robbie Farr on next week's show. Yes, we hope we can catch him uh, because it is a major news story mm. with with what's happened with him and the sprint car team. Well, that's all we have for this week's Inside Speedway. I hope you can join us next time round. 
Tune in next week for more on Inside Speedway. Inside Speedway is produced by Thunder Media. Any reproduction, accounts, or descriptions of the program without written permission from Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Inside Speedway is brought to you by P1 Australia and by Speedway Classics Magazine, on sale now.